the history of any town is written in blood. What's buried in your town? 31 Tales presents Tales Written in Blood. Hello, good morning and welcome to the 2nd of December episode. Just six more sleeps to go. I'm hoping to get one last episode in for Christmas, so hopefully that will happen. Uh, First off, I just need to do a shout out for the comments I've had. Peace, who after last episode said they'd heard voices in the basement when they were home alone. I don't think I would have been very brave in that situation and would probably have run outside or melted on the spot. A shout out to, I think it's Bryony, but the spelling is slightly different, so I'm sorry if I said your name wrong. But Bryony is nine and has commented on loads of episodes, which are always great to read. She would like a gaming story about Grounded, which is her brother's favourite game and is one I'd not heard of before, but being shrunk and having to survive in the backyard against hordes of giant insects sounds great. Also nine-year-old Koa, who listens after his sister falls asleep. Another nine-year-old would love to hear a story about Kissy Missy and Huggy Wuggy, which is a good idea for our gaming stories. There's a Zelda request. You might be in luck there, so keep listening. Also, shout out to Anime Girl and Nathan for your comments too. Reading these really gives me a boost, and even if it's an older episode, I will still get a notification, so I never miss any. Also, just to let you know, the podcast is now on Ko-fi, which means you can show your support there too, if you like. It is my choice to make the podcast, so I don't expect people to pay for it, which is why I wouldn't set up a Patreon. And I also believe that all episodes should be available to everyone and not keep some back to those who pay. Which is why I've set up on Ko-fi so that if you want to show your appreciation, you can tip me for a tale or buy me a coffee this Christmas. Look for Ko-fi, K-O-F-I, John Abel, link in the show notes. Now let's get on with the story. The Case of Hinton Ampner A hot day at the start of September, where the flowers of the walled garden were going through their summer rotation. Huge great sunflower heads drooped down. The once vibrant yellow had turned. Thistles, which had been violet and handsome just a few weeks ago, had become brown and perished in the sun. Parts of the garden were a hellish nightmare of rotting nature, while others, like the dahlias, were covered in swarms of bees who couldn't get enough of the bright, envious colours. Even those black-stemmed, black-leafed, topped with bright yellow petals, looked unusually beautiful. A large corner of the walled garden resembled something from a Peter Rabbit picture book, where carrots waited to be plucked from the ground. Plump raspberries and blackberries sprouted, marrows and huge orange pumpkins littered the garden floor, while old, gnarled apple trees spread their limbs, and grapevines climbed the walls trying to escape. At the side of the house, surrounded by grey slabs, was situated a long, narrow pond where koi lived beneath the dark green surface, occasionally showing their long bodies and shimmering scales to the sunlight. 
The grounds were immaculately kept, with sculpted hedgerows and beautiful sprays of flowers in all colours. Every area had somewhere you could stop and rest and picnic if you had a mind to. There were also the small woodland areas, cool and dark, hiding long-forgotten monuments and shadowy corners where the enchanted folk lived. The church too was located in front of one such clump of trees, light and airy and by far the coolest place to be on a hot day such as this one. When an afternoon of exploring the grounds was over, it was time to see inside the house and where they all would sleep. The house is relatively young compared to most estates of this size, rattled the guide with her back to Mr Proctor and the children. She looked around at the impressive entrance hall with its collection of antique furniture as though she'd forgotten the small group altogether. It was rebuilt, you know, after a fire broke out in the library in 1960. All of the books had to be replaced. Priceless paintings were passed by hand out through the windows. Come along. The guide then whisked Ben Proctor and children through the house, room by room, relaying all sorts of facts and interesting information to them. From the sitting room to the study, through the library and the dining room, with the table that seated twenty. Each room built to face the far-reaching views of the grounds behind the house. Leaving the dining area took them back to the entrance hall and a winding staircase on the left which led to the first floor. At the foot of the stairs stood an old grandfather clock which was silent now but at some stage would have ticked proudly and chimed on the hour. All the way up the creaky carpeted steps, the walls were decorated with old paintings in large ornate frames. Some were portraits of people long dead and buried, while others depicted scenes from the Bible or mothers tending their children and animals running wild in the woods. The guide took them to the adjoining rooms where the children would sleep. In the first, opposite the bed, was a grand old fireplace. At each end, an eagle carrying a snake in its beak was carved into the white marble. Either side of the fireplace, archways were built into the wall and white ornate windows framed picturesque views of the grounds. A narrow corridor led to the bathroom and the second bedroom, which was much the same as the first. The children would share these rooms while Ben would sleep in a third room down the hall. Couldn't anyone get into the grounds and up to the house? asked Meg, staring out into the distance. With a house like this, you should be more concerned with what's inside than out, replied the guide ominously as she left the room to show Ben Proctor to his. The boys looked at each other. Meg arched her eyebrows. What's that supposed to mean, she called, trailing after the guide. The old Tudor house, its foundations not far from where this house stands now, was said to be haunted by a poltergeist. Even before they were in fashion, back in the 18th century. You know the orchard we passed earlier, where the apple trees grow next to the walled garden? Well, that's where the old Tudor house used to be. 
Meg lay in her bed that night, unable to sleep in her strange surroundings. She could just about make out the outlines of the marble eagles on the fireplace. The high ceilings and the dark shadowy archways made her feel small in the antique bed. She told herself to get a grip and then began to take some big deep breaths through her nose and out of her mouth as she'd been taught to relax her mind and body. Just as she was doing this, she heard the large front door creak open. The front door was only out of the room and at the bottom of the stairs, so it wasn't a surprise that she'd be able to hear it from here. What was a surprise was the way the door was then slammed shut as if by a gust of wind. Her whole body tensed again, and she pulled the quilt up over her mouth and nose. Loud footsteps, like big heavy boots, came barrelling up the stairs. These were interrupted for a moment when they reached the top, but then began again as they raced past the bedroom door, running back and forth along the landing. Meg wondered in her frozen state if the boys could also hear this next door, but she was too afraid to use the interconnecting door which went through the bathroom to find out. The footsteps abruptly stopped outside. It was then that Meg became aware of a presence inside the room. The swishing of a silk dress moved from the window to the bed. There it hesitated before moving again. Small movements darting to the fireplace. Something was knocked as Meg heard a dull thud followed by a rattle, then swishing again darting quickly around the room. Now she was terrified. The quilt covered her face completely, but she could still hear every movement around her. A thud on the bedroom door, then another. It swung violently open, and that's when the voices started. A man and a woman were speaking, but she couldn't make out the words. It was like when you hear your parents talking downstairs, or in the next room, only this sounded like an argument. The man's words were short, abrupt, angry. The woman sobbing, half choked with tears. Meg felt like an interloper, an intruder in someone else's private space. But she didn't want to draw any attention, so she stayed where she was, muscles tense and a hand clamped over her mouth. It was then she heard a low knocking on the connecting door. Meg, are you all right? came Sam's voice through the door. She tried to call out, but she was so tightly wrapped and so afraid that her voice failed her. Meg, called George a little louder this time. Despite the boys knocking, the ghostly argument was still going on around her. Crying sobs and moans, the swishing of a dress, a low growl of a voice. Meg slid out of bed, putting the sounds behind her, and ran for the connecting door. She turned the knob and pushed, startling the boys on the other side who watched on in confusion as Meg slammed the door behind her and rested with her back against it. From the boys' room they listened as all through the night the activity next door continued in the form of dull thuds, soft shuffles and lowered voices. Sam and George agreed to share a bed while Meg took the second as they tried to get some sleep.
Eventually they all nodded off, though the noise went on. In the morning, sitting around a wooden table in the on-site coffee shop, they discussed the night's events with Ben Proctor. It sounds like stone tape theory, he said absently. The children waited for an explanation that didn't seem to be forthcoming. What's that? asked Sam. Stone tape theory is the idea that past events are somehow recorded in the surroundings, in the very walls around you. It's some kind of energy transference which then plays out from time to time like a movie. It sounds like the spirits did not interact with you in any way. They scared the hell out of me is what they did, cut in Meg. Ben smiled. That may be true. It is true, Meg mumbled. When you got out of bed and when the boys were calling and knocking on your door, that didn't change what the spirits were doing in any way. They were not alive as such, just echoes of something that happened long ago. Some ghosts seem to have a will of their own and can interact with the living in some limited way. But in this case, Ben trailed off without finishing his sentence. The children continued eating their breakfast, each deep in his or her own thoughts, until Sam suddenly spoke up. But it couldn't be the stone tape thingy. The original house was knocked down. The new one isn't even in the same spot. You're absolutely right, Sam. Perhaps some of the old bricks were reused. Although that doesn't seem likely as the house has been rebuilt more than once over the years. Perhaps it's not the same ghost, added George. Perhaps the scene that played out last night is something new. Something that happened in this house. Or maybe the old poltergeist is still hanging around. And it isn't sellotape theory at all, he shrugged. The others laughed. You could be right, George. Maybe children being in the house again, after all these years, somehow brought the poltergeist back. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to comment or leave a review. Or get in touch and let me know about any grisly, spooky or strange history from your town.